Uh, we're going to get into our third sermon today on the family series, and we're really excited about what God is, what I think God is saying to us, and the feedback we've gotten so far is really good, so we really appreciate that, and appreciate you letting us know, well, that's helpful to me in uh, raising godly families. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to call today, I got a, a b- bottle of water somewhere, I thought maybe I left it in the, um, maybe I left it in the, the room, so if somebody could get me some water, I, the I need to prime the windmill today. So, um, uh, uh, we're talking about reclaiming the family boundaries today. An interesting phenomenon has occurred in modern society, uh, and we probably don't realize it because it's it's not, by the way, it's not all negative, it's not all bad, but we just don't always realize these cultural shifts that are happening until they happen as we become more and more resistant to our, 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 our values, ethics, manners, and customs being shaped by the church, institutional religion, and family connections. We become more influenced and shaped in our values and molded by the world around us, by popular trends outside of the church, outside of religious institutions, and outside of the family connection. Up until around 200 years ago, you know, uh, one's what person believed their ethics their practices their lifestyle were shaped by their clan by their their because people lived together in large communities of extended families it's hard to imagine but go back 150 years ago no one traveled there wasn't any means of easy travel so people lived in communities, and, and, uh, and they, lived their, uh, they lived their whole life. It was not uh, uncommon at all for a person to live within 50 or 60 miles and never travel outside of that 50 or 60 miles. And, uh, but you don't need to be a sociologist to understand what happened, what happened to culture. Well, actually, three things happened that changed everything about how we absorb values and how we absorb ethics, and how we absorb our moral positions, and all of this thing. Three things happen. Technology, bureaucracy, and philosophy. Philosophy that was untethered from God and His Word. I'm not suggesting that all of history was just like Christian, and everybody was all Christian. I'm not suggesting that at all. But, 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 but morality, and ethics, and values... Were, were tethered to uh, supernatural beings, for instance. E- even when you go back to the Greek and Roman culture, uh, th- they believed that the gods were ruling. So they were supernatural entities that had greater wisdom than humankind. So people were always looking up. But that, uh, th- that all changed in many, many ways. For one thing, d- during, the, during the Romantic period before the French Revolution, uh, we had all these philosophers begin to begin to teach people to look within for their values. Remember, you've heard of the phrase, I think, therefore I am? Well, that came out of that era. Immanuel Kant said, I, said, said your, your own thoughts is what shape you. So we begin to, we begin to pull away from the, the church, the family outside of us, shaping our values. We begin to do it within. And then, then something else happened, and really... What the, the biggest change happened was in uh, modern education and the urgency that certain, um, I would call them humanistic bureaucrats, began to, like Horace Mann, who 
was born about 20 minutes from here in Franklin. Horace Mann and John Dewey, they had to create, they felt, and probably rightfully so, that they had to create citizens who could manage a technological society instead of families. This is, this is huge. They begin, to, they begin to believe this happened, you know, uh, Horace Mann lived from 1848 to 1853, and he, he, he and John Dewey are called the fathers of modern education. And, and their whole thing was to create citizens who could manage this technological society, this industrial revolution, instead of families who would transmit their values from generation to generation. Now, that is a huge shift. That is a huge shift to produce citizens who can go make stuff, make widgets and, and equipment, and leave the family. And, and so we had this huge shift. In fact, Horace Mann said this, uh, oh, and I'm not trying to demonize him. I, I don't think he was a horrible demon-possessed person or some, he wasn't uh, uh, meeting in some witch's cauldron, uh, developing a potent, uh, some potion to steal your children away from you. He was simply being pra pragmatic. We've got to create people who can make stuff because we're not all living on the family farm anymore and we're not separated. We're going to live in big cities and we're going to be all crammed together and we've got to manage society. The mistake they made was they, was they separated God from the equation. The mistake they made is they did not work hard enough to preserve the sacredness of the family. So he, in fact, here's what... Uh, Here's what Horace Mann said. He said, we who are engaged in the sacred cause of education are entitled to look upon all parents as having given hostages to our cause. Mann helped to implement the statewide public school system in Massachusetts in the 1830s. And uh, just as Horace Mann believed the primary goals of schools was to make every child a good worker and a supporter of the state, John Dewey, who came along a little later and even took it further, and John Dewey created the first normal schools, they called them. Columbia University became a school, a teacher school that, 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 uh, that uh, developed teachers. And they, so they created teacher schools that would train teachers to teach their children all over the United States. And they all gave them the same curriculum. So this is what they were supposed to teach. And he believed, John Dewey believed, the public school is the chief remedy of the ills of society. That's what he said. He believed the public school, and I'm not... And, and it's all education outside of it. It's not just, it could be private schools, public schools. So we're not, we're not, ba I'm not bashing public schools today. And uh, he, but he believed the public school is the chief remedy for the ills of society and envisioned changing the work of the school as to make the school itself a miniature of society itself. So he was, that, that they were, they were, they were moving the center of our lives away from the family to public education. Now, Change brought on by technology was inevitable, but instead of fasting and praying, instead of appealing to prophets, teachers, and pastors to interpret these advances in technology and moving us from an agriculture or an agrarian society to an industrial one, we relegated scripture, listen, we relegated scripture and religion to a small corner of our lives as mere uh, a psychological aid and to maintain civility. In fact, Horace Mann wanted scripture to be used in schools to teach people to be nice to each other in the golden rule and all of that. So what's the good news? <laughs> the good news is God's people have been here before. And we know exactly what to do.
That's the good news. You say, well, I don't know what to do. Well, that's why you came to church today. So I could tell you what the scripture says, and you can even disagree with it. That's okay. But I'm going to tell you what I believe God is telling us to do. And it's not to become revolutionaries or, or try to fight the culture war necessarily. It's, it's, way, it's way simpler than that. And we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, and then we're going to jump back to take a big left turn and go to Genesis 7-1, read two passages of Scripture that tell us what we're supposed to do because we're going to read about a guy who was in our situation today, only it was a lot worse. I know people want to think, this has never been this bad before. Oh, it's been worse. <laughs> That's the good news. It's been way worse than this. Hebrews eleven seven. It was by faith that Noah built a large boat. Pause for a second while I drink, take a drink. And for emphasis, to save his family. Pause right there. I, when I, I grew up hearing the story, and I don't know where I got the idea that the boat that he built was supposed to hold everyone in the world. There were 700 million people approximately, in the world at that time. And it never dawned on me as a kid that 700 million people, you can't build a boat that will fit 700 million people. And then I ran into this verse a few weeks ago when I was preaching in a church in Newton, and I, it never just stood out to me like that before. I never thought of it before. Noah built the ark to save his family. And that's... That's our, our marching orders. My marching orders is to save my family. And we'll get in next Sunday. We're going to talk about the extended family and all that, but not today. He obeyed God from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about things that had never happened before. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world, and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. Then you can just jump back to Genesis 7-1. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. So today I want to talk to you about setting family boundaries by creating family culture and attending to your differences. Attending to your differences. I am talking about being unashamedly different from the world that you find yourself in and around you, and yet still appropriately connected. We're not going to, I'm going to try my best not to make you weird. Because the world around you, there's some good things in it. In the midst of 700 million people or so who were not listening to God, creating a world that defied God and mistreated one another terribly, Noah and his family epitomized the idea of building a healthy boundary between one's family and the culture. And although he didn't save the culture, he valiantly tried. He did save his family. And by saving his family, he saved the world. I said by saving his family, he saved the world. Because if God, God never steps in to judge people just because he's mad. God never steps in to judge people just because he's angry with them. God never steps in and does what he did, by, like sending a, uni, a universal flood or a global flood. And we don't know if it was regional or global. We, don't, we just don't know for sure. But God never does that just because he's just had it with us. I can't take it anymore. 
They've just pushed me too far today. No. He always does it. It's always an act of mercy. If God had not stepped in, there was so much violence. And we could, I could show that in other scriptures. I'm not going to go there right now. There was so much violence, so much dysfunction, that everyone was going to, they were going to destroy themselves. It's kind of, kind of like if, if, if nuclear, nuclear war could happen today, especially with artificial intelligence and sh- machine learning, it's, it's, it's potentially possible to have a nuclear war that wipes the entire human race out. So God steps in by his mercy. Miroslav Vald, I want to give you one more quote before I really get into the meat of the sermon today. Uh, Miroslav Vald, who manages the um, uh, uh, Center for Faith and Religion at Yale University. So, so we're not talking about some extremist here, <laughs> especially a right-wing extremist, if he is fulfilling that function at Yale University. And uh, uh, so for him to say what I'm about to say is very significant, very significant. And, and if, if someone who maybe was identified uh, politically maybe with some group or because uh, uh, I'm extreme group, especially an extreme uh, right-wing group, you might take what he said with a grain of salt. But when Miroslav Volf says it, it grabs my attention. Not that it's wrong for the others to say it, but I just think it's especially credible when someone in his position and someone with his intellect makes the statement. Christian communities, and you could put Christian families there as well, because that's, that's what the family is. The family is a community. Christian communities will be able to survive and thrive in contemporary societies only if they attend to their difference from surrounding cultures and subcultures. The following principle stands. Whoever wants the Christian community to exist must want their difference from the surrounding culture, not their blending into it. As a consequence, Christian communities must manage their identity by actively engaging in boundary maintenance. I mean, that's an, yes, that deserves an applause. I only, I only got one person to applaud. <laughs> you, you mean to read it again? <laughs> well, that's a nice golf clap anyway. <laughs> no, seriously, I'm going to give you four steps. Four steps to create ba- uh, family boundaries. Step one, become a curator of culture, not a mindless consumer. Since the beginning, the powers that be have been determined to turn you into a mindless consumer. Because it makes them a lot of money. You know, in 1924, this is, I could not believe this happened when I read it. Because we always think all this stuff is new, you know. 1924, all, all the light bulb manufacturers in the world gathered in Europe someplace and had a conference. And you know what their conference was about? Their conference was about that they were making light bulbs that lasted too long. <laughs> and this, so they had a conference. Westinghouse was there from America, and I don't know what other was involved, but all these heads of uh, companies that made light bulbs had a meeting in Europe and said, we've got to do something about these. We're getting too good at making light bulbs. And so we've got to start creating a failure point, or we're, going to not, we're not going to make any money. 
And they, so they all agreed on failure points. And so they all went back to their companies and created laboratories. And in the laboratory, the whole design of the laboratory was to create failure points in your light bulbs. So you have to change your light bulbs all the time. So you have to go buy more light bulbs. So uh, that's the big, that's part of the big shift that happens. We, we became in a, uh, the economic model that we entered into was, was, was designed to make you a consumer and make your family a consumer and make your, make your children consumers. And of course, in the 1950s, the, the, the rock and roll phenomena in television aimed directly at your kids to start getting them to spend money and uh, spend lots of it and made a lot of people rich. So that's, that's, that is what it is. Now, what is a curator? When I, I, I like the word curator. I don't know why I kind of like how it sounds and the way it comes out of my tongue. Curator. Sounds sophisticated, doesn't it? And, and I almost took the word out. So wait, wait, a cur- curator is not, because I thought of curator as a selector, someone who selects and picks things out. But that's not really what the word means. A, a, a curator is a, like a governor. It's someone who, who, who oversees something. But the main idea of their oversight is to weed out what is good and pick out what is good. Pick, uh, uh, weed out what is bad pick out what is good. It's like a, a museum, a curator at a museum. A curator at a museum decides what pieces of art fit with the, uh, the theme of the museum and which ones are authentic, and which ones are fake, and which ones have value, and which ones don't have value, which ones that people want to see, and which, which, which ones they don't want to see. And so they are curators. They don't just, I mean, I mean, God bless the blessing barn. I love the blessing barn, but they don't just go to the blessing barn and just buy all those pictures and put them up in their museum. You know, we, we wish they would. But, but speaking of curating, the Sherry and the staff at the blessing barn, they are incredible curators walk around there, do they ever do an incredible job of putting the, this good stuff out? And, and it's, just, it's, just, it's just amazing. I think, I, think we pro- I think they probably did, see, uh, Sherry's going to correct me, but they probably had 11 or, 11 or 1,200 transactions there this week. People are coming from everywhere to shop the Blessing Board because they're such good curators. Sharing the staff curate so well. So here's the thing. The world that you live in is not all bad. There's a lot of good stuff out there. Have you been to a good restaurant and had some good food lately? I mean, how many of you have gone to eat at Bar Athena in Huffington? Lisa and, and Lisa, and I'm going to just give them a plug, a shameless plug. But uh, Lisa and Gordon Wood, who come to our church, run one of the finest restaurants you will ever go to in your life. And so, it's a very worldly place, though. It's out in the world. (laughs) Some of you were so kind, and you you knew it was on my bucket list to go to a Super Bowl that the Patriots were playing in. So some of you helped to send myself, and my son went with me, and we, I think it was Super Bowl 49, Seattle and, uh, and, and Patriots. And I, I got to be there in person. And that was awesome. I, I love the world. The world is fun. There's all kinds of cool things to do. There's, there's the Grand Canyon. There's all kinds of amazing things to do. There's great movies. I mean, how many of you saw Top Gun? Maverick. How many of you saw that? Was that a good movie or not? 
That was a great movie. There's great movie. There's great music. There's great music that doesn't talk about Jesus. I mean, I love music songs that talk about Jesus, but there's great songs. There's great musicians. That oh, the world is an amazing, wonderful place. And so you need to, you know, we never, we never put this wall up and said we're not letting anything secular into our household. Only, only things that are spiritual and Christian are going to come into our house. No, we. We, we listened to music that wasn't gospel music. We listened to all kinds of music. We, we enjoyed movies, television. We, the world is a great place. It's also a terrible place. It's also all kinds of rot and stuff that you must not let into your family. A, a curator is not a critic, but a critical thinker. And, but stop. Here's, here's the thing. Stop believing that accepting everything in the culture is your key to success. Stop believing the myth about extreme culture dependence. You know, uh, Friday morning, I wasn't looking for sermon illustration, but I had coffee with, uh, uh, I don't know if you're here, uh, Rick Campbell, are you here, Rick? There's Rick right there. So um, I I hope you don't mind me telling this, Rick, but I had coffee with you Friday morning, and for some reason, I guess because I've been studying about the family, I was up early that morning, uh, doing research for this sermon, and uh, I said, tell me about your family. I want to know about your family. And I, I did not know, I did not know uh, uh, of, was it five children, right? Six. six children, six. Six six children. They were all homeschooled. So I'm sure they were all failures, right? And I'm sure none of them went to college, and none of them are very successful today, Right? Wrong. I, I did. I didn't know everybody in Rick's family. I know. I know Jake, who's a police officer in Milford, and so I had him just go through with me. Okay, tell me about your family. They were all homeschooled. At, uh, most of them, all twelve grades. Some were like ten grades. They were homeschooled, and they were homeschooled back in a time that his, his children ranged, you know, from twenty-four to f- like forty-two. And so back when they did it, they, the state was taking people to court to stop them. And I'm not. I'm not. Pushing homeschooling. That's not what I'm doing. Well, Sherry and I looked at the idea of homeschooling, and we just we thought we'd probably kill our children. So <laughs> we we thought that was a bad idea. We're we're just we're, we're pretty high strung people, you know. So <laughs> it, it's not for everybody. Homeschooling is not for everybody. But but the idea, you know, that that uh, if you you know every, every once in a while. And it really, I'll tell you, it really annoys me, so I just want to get that out there, that when people start saying, if you go to Bethany Christian Academy, you can't go to college. That is the stupidest thing anybody ever said. You, you can educate your child at your kitchen table, and they can go to Columbia University or Harvard. You know? Come on. But, uh, I, so I had him go through. I said, uh, you know, his, uh, his oldest son... Uh, homeschooling his whole life, graduated with an engineering degree from WPI, uh, worked with Navigators, a Christian organization, for 10 years, and now works designing parachutes for the military. And, and you want your parachute designer to be good. <laughs> you don't want some loser designing your parachute. We don't want some loser who went to homeschool and doesn't know anything about anything, you know. Uh, Jacob, of course, some of you know Jake. He, 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 was, he has his master's in criminal justice. 
and is a police officer in Milford. Only the finest in blue in Milford, right? Uh, his son Josiah is a paramedic, fireman, a couple of years of college. Ben has, also has engineer, his engineering degree from B, uh, WPI, has his master's in engineering, works at Natick Labs. You might have seen him on Fox and Friends because he was on there a few years ago with an uh, outdoor cooking setup that he designed for, for military to use out in the field. So I guess, uh, I guess not taking in everything with the culture just didn't hurt him, did it? And then Hannah, who's, uh, I don't know if Hannah's here this morning, but Hannah's been coming to church some, and we were, we're happy about that. She has her, her degree in exercise science, Colleen. She has a degree in exercise science, works for quite a while for Dell, writing programs for exercise and nutrition. She's between jobs right now. Uh, uh, Ethan's 24, and of course, all 24 years, probably still figuring things out, but he's uh, got a couple of years of college, and he's a car salesman out at Imperial Cars. Stop believing the myth that the culture is your key to success, that your kids can't succeed unless they go along with everything the culture is telling you. It's all a lie. It's all a lie. It, it, it is also a lie that everything the culture is doing is bad. It's a lie that everything that schools in the culture are doing are bad. That's a lie as well. You've got to become a curator. You've got to put, my mother would say, put your thinking cap on. Put your thinking cap on. God designed you as an individual with autonomy. God, God anointed you to rule over your family. And he hasn't anointed anybody else to rule over your family but you. Somebody say Amen. Step two, develop a our family does, our family doesn't list. I, I, I got this from Jason during the week. I said, Jay, I'm working this term and I'm kind of stuck. I, I want to talk about families creating their own culture and setting boundaries and not just being this mindless consumer. And, and he said, well, every family, he said what I said there. Every family needs to create their own our family does. Our family doesn't list. And the funniest thing happened, a couple days later, I have Ellie, my four-year-old, and I took her to the grocery store with me. And we go to Shaw's down here. And I get to the door, and I realize the debit card I needed to use for this purchase I'd left in the car. I can't imagine, Pastor Phil, ever forgetting anything. <laughs> and so I said, Ellie, we've got to go back to the car. So we're going to the car, and they, this curb that she wanted to stand up. What is it about kids? They always want to jump up on the curbs. And so she wanted to stand on the curb, and it was another 70 feet or so to my car, and she wanted to stand there while I went to the car. And I said, no, Ellie, if I leave you here and something happens, your parents will say, Pop is an idiot. <laughs> as quick as that, she said, no, they wouldn't. Our family doesn't talk like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget when Jay was a little boy walking through the living room one day and we were, he was watching TV and I was paying no attention to what he was watching. I was busy doing, going, whatever I was going to do next. He goes, Dad, I'm not supposed to watch this. <laughs> he knew our family doesn't watch that show, whatever it was. It was probably, uh, it was probably uh, I don't know, Who's, who's the guy who used to ride a bicycle? Pee-wee Herman or something? <laughs> Just always, he always creeped me out. I don't know. He probably... <laughs> Anybody else get creeped out by Pee-wee Herman? 
I don't not saying it was evil or anything like that. One of our parents uh, Saturday, a Sunday, by the way, thank you for coming out and helping. It was, you, it was awesome. We, we must have 50, 60 people coming out to help get the barn organized this week. And, and, uh, but I was talking, I saw one mother there with her two boys, and, and I know she works on Saturday night, and I know she was in church, and I could see the tiredness in her eyes. I could see how tired she was. And I was thinking, why didn't she come today? And I went over to her, and I, I, I said something. You know, I, I can see tiredness in her. She said, yeah, I'm really tired. She said, but my dad always told me sleep is overrated. And she said this, I wanted my boys to be here today. That's, you know, that's creating family culture. That's saying your family culture could be, okay, when the church has a work day, my family goes and helps. Sunday, our family goes to church. Uh, I remember when there was a uh, kind of an insurrection that happened in a church, a church of my childhood. It's a long story. I'll, I'll not bore you with it, but we just had a change of pastors. And the group of people now looking back, I realize these were the power brokers in the church who didn't like the new pastor. And boy, they, it, it got ugly. He even, even, even broke out in a service where someone, I, I watched a guy walk, to the, walk up and point his finger at the pastor and say terrible things to him in front of the whole church. And I remember my parents said, we're not going to be a part of that. Our family doesn't do that. Our family doesn't talk bad about the pastor. Our family doesn't do that. You've got to develop that pride you got to develop that pride. Our family does this. Our family does what's right. Our family works hard. Our family prays. Our family trusts God. You start saying things like that when they're little bitty kids. And I know some of you, your kids are older and you, you can't get those years back. I gotta, just relax. Just, just start praying and trusting God. Uh, God has a way of restoring things. And I don't have time to talk about it much. So anyway... Develop your our family does, our family doesn't list. Um, just, anybody got anything I can add to that? What, what, what's, your, what's, your, what's your list? Our family does, our family doesn't. Somebody help me out. Yes. Wow. Wow. What, I don't know if you heard that. Yeah. A little girl was being, I guess, bullied and, and, and mocked by other people. And her, left alone, her daughter went over and, and, and she said, our, we, our family. Yes. That's what I'm talking about. You develop family. You give your children. Now, now I could talk for a long time about stuff. Uh, you know, there were convictions and stuff that my family had that went too far when I was a kid. But it didn't hurt me. It really didn't hurt me. I mean, we had some that were just, we were Pentecostal, holiness, I guess you could even call us fundamentalist, in a way. And so, so we had a lot of rules. <laughs> a lot of rules. But you know what they did? 
they, they gave me a sense of distinction. They, they created a backbone in me. They, they actually equipped me. I mean, some people, well, you got brainwashed. No, I didn't get brainwashed. I, I, was, I was quickly able to discard a lot of the nonsense. And, and there, I was quickly able to discard the nonsense that, that was included. But what it gave me was a sense of this is, our, this is our family. This is our culture. So I don't care what the rest of the world does. As for me in my house, we will serve the Lord, you know? Uh, yes, amen. Step three, grasp how everyone benefits when we set boundaries. Now, this is hard to grasp because it can feel... And nobody likes, most of us don't like how it feels to exclude. I mean, it just feels uncomfortable, right? It, it feels uncomfortable. Uh, I remember someone came in the church a few years ago that, that, that said to us, the, the, the us and them talk makes us, we don't like how that feels. But, and I don't know how to resolve that for you. But if you don't have it, you don't have your own family culture. Uh, let me get back to the point. I want to tell you how it benefits everyone. The scripture says, Enter the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go there. Almost every great Bible story about a man or woman or minority group who stood alone and stuck with the truth when everyone was around when was submerged in the lie was a story that ended up bringing salvation to that part of the world. David and Goliath. What was happening with David, the story, everybody knows the story of David and Goliath. The Bible says, on hearing the words of Goliath, all Israel was dismayed and terrified. I just found a mistake in the Bible. I hate to, I hate to tell you that, but I just found a mistake. All were not dismayed and terrified. There was a shepherd boy who was different than everybody else. And he saved the world. He saved the nation of Israel, I should say. Then there's the story of the, the three Hebrew men in the fire, the furnace. We, everybody kind of knows something about that story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn and flute, Nebuchadnezzar had built this uh, image that everybody had about to. And the Bible says, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, Listen to this. I could not believe it. I, again, I've been reading the Bible 60 years, and I keep seeing stuff I didn't see before. I guess I better keep reading it, right? <laughs> All the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Again, I found, I found another mistake in the Bible. All the people didn't bow down. Three men suddenly had back trouble and they couldn't bow and they couldn't bend and they threw him into the fiery furnace but that's the hero story that you tell your kids now because God showed up in the fiery furnace then there was Paul and the early apostles the writers of the New Testament everything they were writing was countercultural to that world that they live in a woman a world where women were treated as property Children were abused sexually in every other way and no, no authority stepped in. A world where slaves were, were killed by their masters and treated terribly. 
and Apostle Paul comes along, and I know some of you read Apostle Paul and you see kind of the harshness and things, but if you, read, if you really read it and you compare him to the culture, he's really, really being very progressive. And Western civilization was built. Apostle Paul was the first writer in history to empower the weak. He stood alone. Thank God he stood alone. Then there's um, William Tyndale, not a Bible character. William Tyndale was a, um, a, a scholar who was not happy that the church had, the, had only the Bible in Latin. So the normal person could not read the Bible. Now, I want you to... I want you to think about the Bible. Most of you have it on your devices now, and you don't, probably don't have a big Bible with you like we used to carry to church, but you have the Bible. If it not, wasn't for William Tyndale, you would not have a Bible. You would not be able to read the Bible if it wasn't for William Tyndale. William Tyndale said this. He said, In the universities they have ordained that no man shall look on the Scripture until he be nozzled in heathen learning. Eight or nine years. And this was back in... Like 1520, you think, you, think, you think the problems of the world are new. <laughs> this is like 1520. I think he was born in 1503 or something like that. Until the scriptures be nozzled, in, until they be nozzled, and that's uh, saturated, in heathen learning eight or nine years and armed with false principles with which he is clean shut out of the understanding of the scripture. To one cleric that he was arguing with, he said, if God spare my life, ere many years pass, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. Well, he did not get elected to be Pope. <laughs> they executed him by strangulation, strangulation and burned him at the stake. It wasn't enough to strangle him. They wanted to make a... They wanted to make a a statement, and they, they burned him at the stake because he translated the Bible into English. What do you want to be? You want your family to be the, the lemmings, the mob that goes to destruction? Or you want your family to be like William Tyndale? We know what's right. And God has revealed to us what's right. And even if they burn us at the stake, we're going to do it. And we're going to do what's right. Of course, there's Joshua. He said that famous when he stood before the nation of Israel. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And what about Jesus? Jesus died alone. What, what, what if Jesus would have heard the shouts of the mob and said, never mind. I'm not, I, I guess I'm wrong. I can say, since I'm the only one here today that believes that I'm the Son of God. I'm the only one that believes if I take the right action, it will save the world and save people from their sins and give people hope forever. I'm the only one today who believes that. I'm the only one in the world who's, who's standing up and saying they believe that. What if Jesus would have bowed to the crowd? What if Jesus would have, would have, would have said, I can't, I can't do this alone. I, I have to go along. Everybody can't be wrong. Yes, they can. They're not always. Sometimes the crowd is right. But the crowd can be totally wrong about things. And there are things that are happening in the culture right now that they are 100% wrong. And if you will wait, 
God will vindicate you. If you will be patient, God will vindicate you. Not because you're a hater or a fighter, but because you're right. I wrote an article today. I hope, I hope you read it because I think it could be encouraging to you. You're not wrong and you're not crazy. That's what I titled it. You're not wrong and you're not crazy. And you're not alone. Because you're in a room full of ark builders. Where many, many people, maybe the majority in this room, are here to build an ark for our families. And we come on Sunday to learn how to better build our ark. Finally, step four, and the final step, is be a constant reminder of the hope of the gospel. The ark was a symbol of the hope of the gospel. Political activism and social reforms can be right when they alleviate human suffering. You know, there are all kinds of painful reminders that judgment on a nation that doesn't honor God is, is very painful. And we'd like to help people avoid it. But the gospel hope doesn't diminish when political reform fails. It failed in Noah's time. The ark is shouting to the top of God's lungs, my plan is your hope. The kings of the earth prepare for battle, the Bible says. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from the slavery to God. But the one who rules in heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then in anger he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, on my holy mountain. I will give you the nations as your inheritance. The whole earth is your possession. What an amazing verse. Let's stand. How many of you here today would say, Pastor Phil, I don't know how to do it, maybe, but I'm going to take the challenge today. I'm going to take the challenge that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Just raise your hand. I'm going to take the challenge. Lord, I pray for every hand that's raised. I pray, God, that your anointing will rest on every person. Those who raise their hand, maybe those who aren't so sure. doesn't matter to me right now. I pray for every family in this place, that every family will go home today and say, Lord, show us how to build an ark for the saving of our household. That ark is not something we get into to hide from the world. In fact, we don't get into that ark yet. That ark's not ready to sail yet. But we build it as a monument and all our friends know and our family, our extended family knows we're, we're doing something different. We're doing something they may not understand. But something that if we stay with it, we will save our lives. We will save our children. And we will, by God's, your amazing grace, we will save the world. Because like you, we love the world. And we care about the world. And our heart beats with compassion for the world. And we are not looking down our nose with judgment. We're not looking down on them just to save them, but we're looking up to them to serve them. That's our goal. And we can only do that if we attend to our differences. And we love you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.